Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week. We have a fascinating guest. He is a barrister and QC, uh, started an incredible movement called the Black Talent Charter. Uh, he's a commercial practice lawyer in energy and natural resources, very topical, public international law and cross-border disputes, among many other things that he does. I've been looking forward to having him on this podcast for about 12 months. And because he's in such demand, Today has been the first day I've managed to get this recording. So without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Um, my name is Harry Matovu QC. I am a barrister and QC at Brickcourt Chambers, one of the uh, leading sets in commercial law and competition law in the Temple in London. And... Um, I have been a barrister for 30 years in practice there since my training uh, as a junior barrister and now as a QC. So 30 years in practice. And I'm delighted to uh, join you, Jonathan, and to join everybody else who may be listening to this podcast on this great series, Inspiring uh, Leadership. Thank you, Ram. I'll hand back to you, Jonathan. Thanks, Harry. It's lovely to have you on. You and I were talking earlier about uh, a, a fascination we both have about leadership over, over the centuries, over the years, how it's morphed and changed. What, what is your uh, understanding of leadership, how it's evolved and what it means now, particularly this theme of inspiring leadership? Yeah. I've, when you asked me to come on to this podcast, Jonathan, I just sat back and thought, what is it that I've got to say? Because as many people know, as a barrister in private practice, I'm a self-employed practitioner. So I sat back and said, well, I've got no leadership experience of my own to speak of. What is leadership? And it seems to me that leadership, um, or where I've got to so far, is that leadership involves the ability to set a course to produce a desired outcome, and nations have the aim of security, prosperity, peace and growth. Individuals may have self-fulfillment, maturity and happiness. Um, and then the second thing is the ability to make others follow that course that you have set. And the third point is the ability to make them follow that course to the max, to bring their best selves to the um, project that you have identified. And when I followed that through, I looked back to see, well, is leadership now the same sort of leadership as we would have had in history? And that's what we've been discussing. And um, I, I did classics at uh, university, which I enjoyed enormously. And I remember that in Homeric times, the ideal of leadership started with nobility. You could not be a leader unless you were a nobleman. And the other great quality that was required of a leader was the ability to fight valiantly in battle to protect your community. And then one moves forward to perhaps the Roman Republican times where you get the concept of leadership being service to the state. It's no good to be somebody who enjoys the arts and who has private interest in the arts. You've got to put your qualities to the service of the state. And then one moves forward to the Renaissance and, of course, Machiavelli, who wrote the, one of the earliest treatises on leadership. And what one gets out of Machiavelli is the idea of leadership perhaps as an end in itself rather than of service to the state, as an end in itself, um, as a career. And that's what he was talking about. How do you become a leader and maintain that position as a career against all the opponents who may come up against you? And it is out of that that you develop in Machiavelli the concept of the leader who will be prepared to do terrible things if necessary in order to remain a leader. And then beyond that, 
um, one gets the obvious example of wartime leadership. And that brings us right up to the modern age. What is a modern leader? And what makes an effective modern leader? And that's no doubt something we're going to explore in our discussion uh, going forward today. But it seems to me that throughout all those historical trends and changes, one theme that stands out is the theme of leadership by example. And I think that still holds true very much today. So you get Hector in the Iliad, um, Homer's great masterpiece, leading by example, showing himself to be a wonderful husband, caring leader of his community, as well as a valiant fighter. And now we get um, leadership by example today. And perhaps the most thrilling and most evocative example of that sort of leadership, inspiring, quiet, exemplary leadership, is Henry V, Shakespeare's Henry V, going round the campfires at Agincourt, giving a little touch of Harry in the night, as, as the famous um, uh, passage said. And I think that still holds, holds true very much today. Um, and in the TV age in which we live, the sort of age of realism, the post-deferential age, I'd say that leadership's hallmarks require a certain modesty, which again you see in uh, that passage in Henry V, and authenticity, which again you see in Henry V, a conviction in your cause, which again you see in Henry V, and a quiet courage, which is pervade across the campfires in that celebrated passage. And so um, that, it seems to me, is something that has held true down the ages, and it's a pretty good yardstick to uh, seeing what, what is a great leader in any sphere. I completely love the way you've described that. And this idea of what I call the three hums um, from Professor Roger Steer, a friend of mine, humanity, humility, and humor. At times you need to cheer people up with a bit of lightness as well as being very dour and sad. But, but I think um, there was that uh, very good book, Strong Man Leadership, about the likes of Putin, Bolsonaro, Xi Jinping, um, uh, you know, the Hungarian um, Orban, and the Turkish uh, prime minister, where there's this machismo coming back in again, Boris, similar kind of thing, and populism, rather than those lovely qualities of humility and calmness and leadership by example and service to others. It's become self-service and the you know people following the big person, but actually they've lost their moral compass. So I, I think bring us back to Henry V. I, I, I do love that one, we few, we happy few. And, and Jonathan, I think what you said is absolutely right. The reason why populism is not the same thing as leadership is because it misses that third ingredient that I mentioned at the top of my comments, which is the ability to make the people who follow you do it to the max, to bring mm. their best selves to mm. the project that you've identified. Yeah. Populists simply don't do that. And we yeah. see that in the... Uh, those who are described as populists today. Yeah. It's all about themselves. They don't bring people with them no. to get the best out of them to the max. No, no, they don't. And people have got to willingly follow, not, not yeah. because they have to, but they are inspired by that exemplary selflessness of the person, that they want to follow that man or woman. Yes. And, and, and if, that, you don't, if, you don't get, if you don't want to get the best out of people, for me, fundamentally you are a failure as a leader. You cannot be a leader. Yeah, yeah. A leader's got to have followership yeah. where, where, you know, and, and it's interesting, and you're an example from many conversations we've had, and it was um, the, the former Lord Mayor, Sir William Russell, who said the person you've got to get on this series is, is Harry Matuvu, because uh, he said there's that lovely humility, but yet you have, you are a leader, even though you're an individual um, you know, uh, self-employed, as it were, in some ways, what you do in that, whether it be the Black Talent Charter that you've set up, which I'd love you to talk about um, in, in a moment. But you, you've taken a step to stand up for things, which is you got fired at, you got shot at. People have, 
have, have you know had a pop at you but you're not going for popularity which is the populism you're going for respect because you're doing the right thing and that's important yeah, yeah. tell us about the black talent charter if you would the black talent charter is something which has absorbed my thinking over the last three years since before George Floyd died. Uh, and it has arisen in this way, Jonathan. I, uh, as I've said, been a barrister for 30 years. Uh, for many of those years, I was the only black barrister at the English commercial bar, which as uh, you and many others will know is one of the more well-paid ends of the bar. There are lots of black barristers in the publicly funded uh, area of the bar, but in the lucrative um, parts of the bar, there are very few. And it occurred to me that once I'd got a voice as a QC to whom some people may listen, um, it's time I did something about this. And I experienced at close hand the um, naked racism uh, that uh, colleagues of mine had experienced in which they spoke about, as well as the more subtle forms of racism, which I myself had experienced when I was junior and which I couldn't do anything about because I didn't have a voice to do anything about them. And I thought that the time had come to take a stand and to speak up for those who had experienced that. And so I developed this charter for black talent, which was modeled on the women in finance charter because everybody who spoke about diversity spoke about diversity in terms of gender, but nobody wanted to talk about race. Uh, there's a nervousness about talking about race in this country, and they all want to bury it under uh, diversity, and then they move seamlessly to discussions of gender or discussions of social mobility, but they don't like talking about race, and I thought it was high time this happened. So I developed the charter based on the Women in Finance Charter, which many know about, which has been very successful in getting uh, women into senior positions in the city. And um, as I was developing that, then the world seemed to change with George Floyd's murder in the US and everybody suddenly realizing that race was a problem. As a result of that, um, many senior people in the city wanted to engage with this debate. And so I took my project around the city got a great level of engagement. And in due course, in October of 2020, we went live with this uh, charter where we uh, encouraged companies to, who signed up to the charter to pledge to establish targets and action plans to get black people into senior positions in the city. And it was focused very much on black people because black professionals are the most underrepresented group in the city and in that um, mm. sector of uh, the economy. Uh, the stereotypes work against black people. We're meant to be very good at running and jumping and dancing. Uh, I can do one of those three, but not, not <laughs> anything else. Um, but we're not meant to be very good at doing um, clever things. And that ridiculous stereotype holds very strongly uh, even in the most subtle ways, it is very deeply ingrained. And I want to bring out fundamental change to the way black people are perceived, black professionals are perceived in the city. We're thought of as risks, you see. Um, every time a leading assignment or a big case comes up, the first instinct when you have a black professional in your organization is to question whether it should go to that black professional whether the client would be comfortable with it going to that black professional. And I want to change the whole way of thinking so that when a big assignment comes in, you're not looking at the black professional, you're looking at a professional. And if that person is the best person for the job, you give that job to that person, regardless of the uh, quotient of melanin in their skin. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully one day uh, that will come. So that's, that's the project that um, I've embarked on. And it does require, as you said, it does require people, me, to stand up uh, and be counted. Yeah, well, well, look, congratulations. And I think it's really key. And I'm so pleased that not only did you started it before people began to pay attention to this crucial area of race, 
but that you've given a huge amount of your time uh, at, at your own expense to, to really champion this on behalf of others. And that, for me and for so many others, is leadership. So please keep going. And, and you know, you've got a voice. Let's use it. This is why, you know, I've got a voice. This podcast going out to 110 countries around the world and 77,000 people. Um, they're key people and they're key decision makers. It's not just going for likes. It's going for people who have the ability to influence others. And uh, you and I talked about my, my leadership retreat in Peru that I had. And we also spoke about my brother's death. And I had this rather morbid thought that I was going to die soon myself, a bit like my elder brother, um, and that my time was soon up. And actually, I remembered my father's words before he was killed when I was, uh, it was passed on to me. Um, that he always said, don't die with the music still in you. Uh, and, and also there's a lovely lady who was from Trinidad and Tobago, who I met in Peru on the course. Uh, and she said, Jonathan, she said, you've got a lot of dancing in you. And, yeah. and, and so I'm going to find my voice and do my dancing. And I want you to find your voice. And it's going to be through this podcast and many other mediums. Your, your life journey has led you to be the leader you are today, Harry. Um, tell us a little bit about the journey, about upbringing and, and where you start out in life and, and perhaps two or three individuals who've shaped you as the leader you are today. Well, Jonathan, this is um, a question which I find, I'll be frank with you, I find it difficult to discuss um, because I'm a very private person. Mm. I don't like talking about myself. But as you say, I've put myself up there to lead in a certain area. And so I accept that um, I need to tell people where I have come from. What people see of me is somebody who knows how to string a sentence together, I hope, who is obviously the outcome of a very privileged education, which I have indeed had. Uh, I was educated um, at Eton College, uh, as was my brother. Um, and that is because my father wanted to give us, being an African father, the best education that he thought he could, he could give us. And he considered that to be the classic English private education. So I'm a child of privilege. But my story before that and behind that is not the most easy story. Um, I, my father was not an easy man. He was a person with a lot of stress and a lot of pressures on him. And like many African fathers of that generation, he was quite a tough parent. My mother um, suffered from mental health issues uh, throughout her life, which meant that for extended periods, she was away from us um, in hospital. And eventually my parents split when I was 11 years old. And it was a very difficult home environment in which my brother, my sister and I uh, grew up. School was a sanctuary for us from home life. And um, I certainly found my time at school for that reason, all the more enjoyable as well as uh, having the benefits of all the facilities and wonderful opportunities that a school like that offers. Um, and so I am the product of both the privilege of that education and also the travails, if I can put it that high, of a home life which required one to acquire a pretty strong basis of resilience. Mm. I am a combination of those two. And I have never tried to forget, and I've always tried to keep in mind where I come from. I haven't mentioned that my heritage is Uganda. Mm. My parents were both 100% Uganda. They were African. I am African heritage 100%. I have never forgotten where I come from. And so I straddle a world in which I am both one thing and the other. Mm. to uh, white folk, many of them say, well, I don't count as a black person because I'm obviously white having had the education that I've had. 
to black folk, I'm often told, well, I don't really count for them because I'm obviously white from the privileges I have had. And yet there are other white folk who will say, well, I'm not white because I'm clearly black. And so uh, others have spoken about this, the um, uh, schizophrenia of having to negotiate and navigate two worlds. And it's most clearly and most strongly being identified in a fantastic um, speech, which was made by the current US Chief of Air Staff, General Brown, in the wake of George Floyd's death, which he called Navigating Two Worlds, where you're not accepted either by your black community or by the white community in which you pursue your career. Mm. And that has given me a resilience and a an interior life, a life of curiosity, a life of questioning, of self-questioning, um, which has never left me. Um, and I think that informs a lot of what I think, and it informs everything of who I am. Wow, Harry, that, that in itself is probably one of the most powerful stories and acknowledgement of, of a, a life situation that you're in, this straddling of two worlds particularly, and that ability to see things from multiple perspectives as well, and, and not to be boxed and not to be judged as you are a whatever it is. Thank you. Uh, I, I know- that I, very well, Jonathan. It, it is very much that determination not to be judged. Yeah. And, and how to deal with it when, as always is the case, one is judged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and two of my lifetime um, travail, struggles, is one, to be less judgmental, and two, to be non-attached. Less judgmental about myself or people who are different from me, things that I aspire to do. But often when you're pointing the finger at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back, as they say, because there's so much you've, it's often the things you don't like in someone else, there's much of it in, in you that yeah. you're spotting in them. And, and this attachment to being a something, a, a label, a this, a that, or better than that. Or uh, I was listening to a fascinating book about uh, the biology of belief, I think it's called, uh, I, I've forgotten the biologist, but, but he was saying that, you know, you had Darwin, with survival of the fittest and this competition, red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson would say, versus uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who was saying, actually, it's about cooperation. In your body, your cells aren't, they aren't competing with each other. Yeah. They're more collaborating. And we've actually got to collaborate with each other across different races, different communities, different lives, whatever it may be. And, and we're not, we've been, the Anglo-American approach is highly competitive. And I was brought up in the military where every week I was being ranked and rated against the other officers at staff college or as an instructor at Sandhurst and felt good or bad in comparison to somebody else. He was better than me. And even as a managing director in a PLC, I remember the chief finance officer saying, Graham, last week you were a hero, but this week you're a zero because your numbers are worse than Jonathan. Jonathan, this week you're the hero because you've done better than Graham. And yet he expected us to collaborate. But we were being set off against each other. I don't know if that triggers yeah, for you. And, and this takes us right back to what we were discussing at the beginning of our, dis, uh, of our chat. What is leadership? Mm. Is it populism? Is it populism born of and fostered by competition and the fire of victory? Or is it a leadership which requires a communitarian approach, mm. which makes you give back to your community and bring out the best of the other constituent members of your community? Yeah. And that is, is so fundamental, it seems to me, to the whole notion of leadership down the ages and particularly today in yeah. this diverse world. Correctly, and needed more than ever today. I'm writing the next book, which you are going to be in, Harry, which is CEOs and Teams Inspiring Leadership. And as I'm writing it, I'm going that people are saying to me there's such a shortage of leadership in our politicians, 
not just in this country, my American friends and friends in other countries in France and Italy and elsewhere. And, and more than ever, we need leaders with humility and cooperation and, and respect for others rather than the populism. And I'm going to be up here, so therefore you're going to be down there. And, and that seesaw effect of you're either up or you're down. Um, so important. And it, it makes you think, why is it that the people who aspire to political leadership these days do so? And at the moment, when you look across the world at the populists, they are devoid of political ideas, it seems to me, serious mm. political ideas, mm -hmm. and they just want leadership as an end in itself. Yeah. So we're back to the cartoon of Machiavelli. Machiavelli, incidentally, didn't think this. He thought that you should aspire to leadership in order to do good. Yes. And if you had to break eggs to do that, you, that was justified. But he didn't espouse leadership as an end in itself. And that is what populism seems to be in its practice nowadays. And there was a comment on a, a certain prime minister who somebody said that his only ambition in life was to become prime minister. That's a problem yes. because now he's achieved his ambition. What's he going to do now? Yes. And, and you actually want people who have this idea about, as we were brought up at Santos at the Military Academy, our motto is serve to lead, that officers eat last, and that, that humility was admired, and that when an officer did something that lacked trust and was unethical and broke the law, he didn't need to be pushed. He just stood up and said, I resign. I have done wrong. I resign. I step down. But this day, that there seems to be no parameters, no sense of ethics and integrity. We'll come back to that in a moment. Yeah. Um, so much we can talk about this, Harry. Thank you. Gosh, it's very stimulating. Um, let's go back to you again. Um, in your life experience, what was one of your proudest and happiest moments? And then perhaps tell us of a darkest moment. And again, I know you're a very private man, but what they taught you, not the fact that you had them, because I do find the finest, most humble leaders are the one who are prepared to be appropriately vulnerable at the right time so that we can see, oh, this person, Harry, isn't completely out there and I just can't relate to him, but he's like me. He's had problems too. So proudest moment, darkest moment, and you're learning. I'll start with the latter. And the darkest moments I've already described, it's, it's a home life where um, a parent is clearly very sick and you're very young and you're growing and having to navigate that and not betraying it or not feeling that you can betray it uh, at school and that taught me resilience mm. and it's also something that my father expected of us because I watched him trying to deal with it and to be frank, he didn't deal with it uh, very well. And I can understand how when you are trying to hold down a job, I can now understand, being a father myself of three sons, that when you are trying to hold down a job and to secure the safety and well-being of your children and deal with a very sick spouse, um, it can go badly wrong. Mm. And so navigating his problems, as well as my mother's problems, was a challenge mm. for someone uh, of the age of my brother, my sister, and myself. What was your father doing work-wise? What was, what was oh, his Oh, he was working. He was a, a, a UN diplomat. Mm -hmm. So um, we left Uganda in the, uh, after the first coup in 1966. And then eventually, in 1970, he got a job at the United Nations Industrial Development Organization, which was headquartered in Vienna, Austria. And there he stayed and worked uh, until his retirement. And he was hoping to go back to Uganda at any time. Conditions weren't right. And then just when he thought that he was able to move back following retirement, sadly, he contracted cancer, which uh, killed him very quickly. Very sorry. Um, so he died young at, at 64. Wow. Wow. No, that, that is. Those were my, that, that was the darkness. What about the light? What about the light? What about the, the light? The light is being a father is the abiding 
pleasure of my life and pride of my life. And seeing my sons who are now 24, 22 and 18, becoming the people that they have become is a matter which gives me more pride and happiness than anything in the world. Mm. That I have given them with my wonderful wife, my mm. glorious wife, a happy home. Mm. A happy home in which to grow up, a safe environment in which to grow up and also a certain body of values, which I can see them living by. Yeah. That yeah. is a great matter of pride. Yeah, uh, and, and I think uh, from your experience, and Crikey, I'm sorry for what you've been through. Um, I, I suppose in a different way with my mother bringing three boys up on her own, I've desperately tried to get it right. This is my second and my last marriage. Um, but but I, I was divorced and, I, and I'm very disappointed that I didn't make that marriage work. But I didn't have a role model because my father was killed. So mother was a single mother. So I didn't know what it was like to see two adults and how they interacted. It's not an excuse. I, I clearly failed in my marriage. And, and I was brought up that you don't. You've got to keep going. And I probably stayed at it longer than I healthily should have done. But you in your own way are determined to give your three boys not only an education like you had, but also a, a, a happy relationship where you and your wife work at it. And I, and I really admired that. Thinking about your boys, um, their age, if I remember, 24, 22 and 18, and um, some into business, some just finishing university, another just finishing his A-levels. Um, what bit of advice do you wish you'd given yourself if you could travel back to the future, meet the young Harry aged 18? What would you say? Harry, this matters, but that doesn't matter. What, what would you tell yourself about what matters, knowing what you know now? I'd say keep the resilience. That does matter. I'd say even when things look as dark as they possibly can look, they pass. Everything is survivable mm. apart from death. Yeah. everything is survivable. And so when, as um, an 18-year-old, one stresses inordinately about uh, not just the small things, but the big things, I've learned over the years that actually um, nothing is so big that it cannot ever be uh, survived. And the third thing that I would remind my young self, something which I've always practiced, is to have an interior life. So you have the extrovert, the exterior life, even if you're an introvert, you have the life where um, you are on display and people can see you as someone on display, but then it's that interior life you need to cultivate. The introspective, the questioning, the curious, the reflective life. And that I think is extremely important for mental health as well as a very good grounding uh, of yourself as somebody who can contribute to the community in which you uh, exist and work. Brilliant. No, I, 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 um, I'm reminded of uh, the Roman emperors, uh, or was it uh, King Solomon had his slave who would say to him quietly in one ear, when things have gone well, sire, this too shall pass. And when things have gone terribly badly, this too shall pass. And, and I do think it's, it's a good reminder to me that things do pass. But at the moment, at that time when you're a young man, it seems like, you know, it's the biggest disaster in the world and it's going on to you. Why me? And the, the pessimists see it as permanent, persistent and uh, personalized and, and pervasive. And that's when you've got to break, break any of those by showing, is it really? And that unravels it. Um, biggest regret in life and a crucible moment that's shaped you? Biggest regret in life <clears throat> will surprise many who know me, but, um, or maybe it won't, that I didn't do the sort of work that I'm doing now with the Black Talent Charter earlier. Now, the explanation for that is that I didn't have a voice earlier. But there's another view, which is this, that when I was at school, I did well at school. I enjoyed it, as I said, and I also did well. 
And a lot of um, my peers said, oh, you're going to go very far, Harry. You're going to um, do well in public life. They expected me to do that. I wanted to go to the bar and I chose a career, which is a career spent very much on one's own doing cases. And one can become eminent, preeminent even, but it is very much doing one case after another and not being a big um, mover of events on the public plane. Now, I don't regret being at the bar. I've learned a huge amount uh, at the bar, but I think that there's always going to be somebody at the bar. There's always going to be somebody to argue a case at the bar. But how many people have an opportunity to really change society in a material way? And there's always something in me which wonders whether I could and should have done something earlier. But against that, I'm unashamed in saying that my greatest ambition throughout my life is that if I have children, I must bring up those children in the way that I hope I've managed to achieve with the support of my, or my wife has managed to achieve with my support, mm. which is to give them a, a happy home and a solid education. Yeah. That's Fantastic. the greatest achievement. Fantastic. And uh, I think you've talked about a number of crucible moments already, so I'll, I'll leave on that one. Let's go around the inspiring leadership compass. Um, certainly in the f- field of law, mm. we, we need trust we need honesty. We, we have a Bible to promise that people will not perjure themselves. And too many uh, in public life we're seeing now are, are happy to have been fired a number of times for lying in their previous jobs. And then they lie in public office and they seem to get away with it. Like, really? Are we just are we just completely ruling this out? So what is your true north that makes you authentic, your sort of MQ, the moral quotient? And what did you learn when you let those key values that you live by, and we might mention a couple of them, slip and how you got yourself back on course? Because we all, we all do slip at times and we have to, you know, re, reorientate ourselves to, to stick to, to our values and integrity. The, well, integrity is the first hmm. um, requirement, it seems to me. Whether you're a lawyer or not, if you don't have integrity, uh, whether you're a leader or not, if you don't have integrity, um, that is a serious problem. Mm. I like to think that I have never lost my integrity. Uh, But that matters very, very much to me. And it's part of my, what I described as my interior life, myself, my self-reflection. How can I look myself in the mirror if I'm ashamed of myself fundamentally to the core? We all make mistakes, as you say, Jonathan, but that doesn't mean that we don't retain our integrity, even if we've made mistakes. Mm. And so that's important to me. And the other quality which is absolutely important to me and has become more so as I've become more senior is the concept of moral courage. Moral courage is the, as I would see it, the courage that makes you live your values, even though you are aware of and fearful of the consequences. And that doesn't really come into play so much when you're junior. But as you become more senior, as you become more able to uh, influence events immediately around you, the question comes in your interior moments, are you going to? Or are you just going to continue having a perfectly nice life as it is? And it's that that impelled me to start the Black Talent Charter. And it is that that has kept me going with Mm. the Black Talent Charter. And it's only when you exercise moral courage that you see that there is more in your tank than you ever thought you had. And uh, it's, it's, is it a muscle? I don't know. Yeah, it, it is. I think it's got to be practiced. It's got Thank to be. you. Thank you. And, and I look to people like uh, General the Lord Dannett, uh, John Stoker, John Griffin. They have been leaders I worked for. All, all happened to be military men that I'd served under. 
but they had very strong integrity and were a role model for me in the absence of a father figure about the way to do things right and do the right things, um, even if it costs them. And in, in the case of Richard Dennett, he challenged Gordon Brown and Tony Blair because one wanted to fight the wars and the other one wasn't prepared to pay for them. And so soldiers were dying through lack of body armor or protection on their armored vehicles. And Gordon didn't like the fact that he stood up to him. So he deliberately stopped him becoming chief of the defense staff when it was his, he was the man selected for it. And he stood out for that. And it meant he lost the very top job, but he did the right thing. And doing the right thing is, is, is so fundamental. Um, yeah. you, you've mentioned Jonathan, one of the people who inspires you. Um, one of the people who inspires me in my professional life always has is Sidney Kentridge, with whom I had the immense privilege to work as his junior on a couple of cases. Sidney Kentridge um, is a, a luminary name at the bar and in the law. Everybody will know him. Uh, he practiced in South Africa for many years. He acted for Nelson Mandela in the first uh, trials that Mandela had to face. He acted for Steve Biko's family in the Biko inquest. And then he came uh, to England to establish his career at the bar in England all over again, starting from the, from the bottom and rose very fast to preeminence at the commercial bar. But Sidney Kentridge is more than a brilliant barrister. There are many brilliant barristers. He is a man. He is a man, not just of integrity, but a man who is unafraid to stand up to power and with a quiet but compelling voice to preach truth to power. Not just truth, but to lead at the bar by his example. And he doesn't say what he's doing. He just does it. He's now in retirement, but he, for me, is the model barrister, undemonstrative, but the most effective because he has a natural authority born of his integrity and his moral courage. Fabulous. What a, what a man. It'd be lovely to have him mm. on, this, on this series. He, he, would, he would be, be very good. He would yeah. be very special. Perhaps we should arrange that. And that takes me from the, the first part, of the, the true north, the moral compass, to the next element of the eight points on the compass, PQ, meaning and purpose. Um, why do you do what you do? What's your calling, your dharma, your vocation? What, what, why do you do what you do? Particularly, I think you've talked very nicely about the Black Talent Charter and why you do that. So you don't need to repeat that. That's very easy. But why do you do the, the law work that you do? Uh, I do the law that I do because uh, it interests me. Um, although after doing it for 30 years, you feel that you've done everything, that, that you've seen everything that, that can be seen. But um, everything I do, I do because I want to do it to the best of my ability. If you're talking about my professional life, mm. I want to do it to the best of my ability and I want to make a contribution in what I'm doing to ensure that the side which I am representing has the best possible representation that I can give it. It's about holding myself to a standard in order to deliver something for a client who needs my assistance. And that's mm. pretty fundamental to you. Yeah, I, I, yes, just on that one, I, I've always wondered, particularly those who are dealing, maybe commercial law, but those who are dealing in criminal law, when, when when a, a legal representative realizes that their own person they're representing is, is lying and is actually guilty, how does the law work in that case? What does that do? I mean, they should stand out and say that this is it, forget it, he's guilty, I, I, I resign, you know, whatever. But it doesn't often happen. They, they often know that they're fighting for the person who has done wrong and their side hasn't got a case, but they'll still keep doing it. And there seems to be a strange system where there's, you know, almost like no win, no fee. Because like, you know, uh, having gone through the, the, the divorce procedures, you know, buckets of money of our family wealth was put in. But, but if your representative does a poor job, you still have to pay. And, and if you lose, you still have to pay. I, I don't know if you have a view on those kind of 
contentious yes. issues. Well, of course, I, of course, I have a view, Jonathan. Every every advocate must must wrestle with that problem. But the wrestling has been um, is light now because uh, those who have gone before us have had exactly that um, problem to wrestle with, and it's now crystallised into a rule of the bar that is known as the cab rank rule, which says that if you've got a case, regardless of what you think of the merits or the worth of all the morality of someone who wants you to help them, you must help them. Uh, and that is true of civil practice as well as criminal practice. It's different for solicitors who can pick and choose their own clients. I believe very strongly in that rule, although many cynics will tell you that it's um, observed more in the breach than in, in the practice. But for me, it is very important. Because there are many times when I have, in my commercial work, I do a lot of fraud, um, civil fraud work, for example, when I have come across clients of mine about whom I might have taken a certain view that what they had done was um, inappropriate, shall we put it that way. Mm. That doesn't stop me from acting for them, because it seems to me that there is always something that can be said of everybody. Mm. And um, it goes to a, another fundamental core of my being, which is that we're all flawed. We're all mm. deeply flawed. Mm. And I found in practice that many people who um, behave inappropriately do so often in extremes. Yes. And people, if you choose the per perception that people come intending to do good, there's some people who are purely evil, and I've met one or two, in my time, both in the military and since then, who are uh, on, on the the dark triad, the narcissistic, Machiavellian, psychopathic. Uh, and, and it's really quite scary. One who took uh, a huge amount of money from me as a fraudster. Uh, and I remember being with him and um, you could sort of tell him, you could see him working out his next angle and his next lie that, and, and how he would be so convincing so interesting one itself. We, we, we won't go off down that, that rabbit hole, but thank you for that. Health is next because health quotient, the third of the eight, is you give so much to your work and to the causes you believe in, such as the Black Talent Charter, which requires leadership and commitment. This We never get work-life balance. Someone described it as better as work-life integration, but part of that work-life integration is to look after your physical health and your mental health. And at times, you and I have talked about this, you've given so much to the work and the family that there's not much time for your physical and your mental health. However, what would be your top tip for your, your physical health that's worked for you with your incredible schedule and also looking after your mental health in challenging times? What, what tips would you give on each? I discovered this in lockdown, as did many of um, my peers um, and we've discussed um, that I've got my work-life balance all wrong um, certainly prior to lockdown it was hopelessly wrong and it still is a challenge and it is one of the great problems of practice as a self-employed barrister every barrister you speak to will speak of the difficulty of maintaining a decent work-life balance or integration, however you choose to call it. In lockdown, and so my health was damaged. Mm. Um, I got cancer. Wow. Um, and things are, um, are on an even keel now. But in lockdown, I took exercise. When we were all locked down and we could only take however many hours exercise it was, I started doing that. And it was not good only for my physical health, but I noticed a very great difference to my stress management, mm -hmm. which is the, basically the, the, the problem that one faces. And um, just walking up, we've got a, we're on the South Downs where I am here, just walking up the hill onto the Downs, just being in nature. You don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to pump iron. Just going for a walk, the doctors are talking about it nowadays, just going for a walk, being in nature, again, allowing your interior self 
to take precedence over the uh, Sturm und Drang, as the Germans would have called it, of modern life. But doing so in a natural environment is fundamentally important. So, Harry, what we'll do after this uh, in the coming months, I'll invite you up here and you're going to come for a walk with me in nature and we'll have some time to think together. I'm going to get you up here. We'll catch the train. I'll, I'll, I'll do this. I do this with my other seers. I take them for a walk. Well, you look physically fitter than I am, so we'll plot the, plot the um, path. A, a, a gentle I'd one. Like that. A gentle one. I'd, I'd very much love having time with you. Um, uh, emotional and social intelligence is, is the next one. And you are respected by people for your ability, not only to have the high IQ, but the high EQ, the way you relate to people connect. It's been so easy in our conversations over the last year or two, just to listen to you, the rapport you can easily build. If there was a top tip for you on rapport building, influence, whatever it is, what would your top tip be? What's the skill that you've learned? And you oh, find that's difficult. Um, I haven't really analyzed it because I suppose if I need to, it's, it's to listen. And that's something which I would, I wish I could say that to a lot of my colleagues at the bar, because we're so used to talking, all of us, not many of us are very good at listening. And if you listen to people, not just hear them, but actually listen to them, there's things they don't say, the gaps in the sentences, you get a lot more out of them and you discover qualities in them which are not visible on first meeting. And mm. I'm very interested in people. I'm curious. Mm. I love seeing new people with new ideas. And I think it's that that, well, it makes life interesting. And if we only go around talking to people, it's all, it's, we're going to get rapidly onto the whole diversity issue and let's steer away from that. But if we only go to people we're comfortable with, to people we think that we can talk to or at, you um, immeasurably diminish the life experience that you yourself can get and the contribution that you can make to their life. Mm -hmm. So listen to people. So true. And, and I lightly stepped over a very big thing that you mentioned that I heard and I listened to. But the fact that you have had cancer and that you're dealing with it, I, just my, my heart goes out to you. And, uh, and there is much that can be done in eat, move, sleep, breathe, focus, prosper to help us in the battle with cancer. And, and there's no doubt about it that more adrenaline and cortisol in the body, it causes inflammation in the body, which does lead to cancer. So what have you learned about your battle with cancer, which has been a heroic battle. And at the moment, uh, maybe seeing it as a war is, is the wrong way to see it. But, you know, at the moment you're winning. But what have you learned from it? Um, first of all, I, I don't call it a heroic battle. It's, it's something that one in two people get and deal with. And the advances in medicine have been astonishing over the years. So um, those of us who are one of the 50% of people who get it, um, caught early as, as is my case, have very good prospects. So it's not heroic. Um, what it does do is that it crystallizes your thinking somewhat. And you said in our an earlier part of our conversation, Jonathan, how the tragic losses that you have suffered very recently, the bereavements that you have suffered, have made you face up to the prospect that we're not here forever. And the same has happened uh, with me. What can you achieve in the time available to you? Are you living, uh, the phrase is, are you living your best life? Are you doing what you want to do, given the other commitments that you have to other people? And um, that continues to impel the work that I'm doing on the Black Talent Charter. Mm um in the hope that it will create some change yeah it also impels what i am trying to do to instill to make sure that my family is on the right course not mm. just financially but uh in other ways deeper ways yeah That's yeah it, it does uh, and at the end of the day when i've been in churches at funerals uh, and remembering people or scattering ashes 
It's the relationships. It's the family. Mm. It's not the fact your inbox is still full and needs emptying. Uh, and the, the the five regrets of the dying in that book is is, is about the you know I, I wish I hadn't spent so long in the office. I, I wish I'd spent more time with my family and friends. I, I wish I'd 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 lived my life, not a life that other people wanted me to live. There's just some of the th- the, the five I couldn't remember the, the last ones, but that. Well, but I have all three regrets. I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think, but now we still have time to do something about it. And um, let's just let's just touch briefly on the other questions I've got. Almost quick mm. fire, because I do want to cover them, but I, I, I also want to get to your top tip. Um, top tip on um, CQ, as I call it, uh, the, the collaborative cognitive and cultural intelligence, getting on with people who are different from you. Top tip there? Be curious. Yeah, uh, it's be what curious. I've said already. Yeah. Be curious, and it's very easy. Yeah. Um, and you'll find that there's more commonality and more interest uh, from other people, and that your stereotypical or initial view of them is very often wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that was what was so good for me going to Peru with 10 complete strangers of all races and backgrounds from different con- countries. It was actually very good for me because I didn't know any of them and just took them at face value. But I even then, in my mind, I'd made a judgment in the first few minutes of meeting them, which I had to let go of completely because they were very different from how I'd even thought they were. So suspend judgment, I think, is... is well, I, I'm not sure about suspend judgment. Uh, I think we all make instinctive initial judgments and sometimes they're a very good defense mechanism mm. um, when you just feel that someone isn't right or something isn't right. But be prepared to change your judgment. That's, that's really good. Thank you. I, I like that one. Be prepared to change. Don't, it's, again, it's the non-attachment. Don't be attached to a particular position. Yeah. Uh, resilience, RQ. Um, top tip on, you know, your resilience is a key thing for you. What's your top tip on resilience? Uh, beyond saying have it, um, I'm not sure how you can acquire it. Um, It's a habit of mind Mm -hmm. that when things go badly wrong, I suppose when things go badly wrong, remember that everything is survivable. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. And that builds your resilience. Yeah. Uh, Brand is the next one. Um, Have you, in the last few years, had 360 feedback from 20 other people done by an independent person and what did you learn about yourself answer no i haven't yeah well maybe we and should. all i do i'm just guided by again we come back to the interior self yeah yeah and, and i'm my own severest critic i think uh, and what is so interesting in high achieving leaders like yourself is that whether it be from the parents i was listening to uh rangan chatterjee who does the um uh, the doctors uh, podcasts and things like that. And he said, you know, his, his Indian parents, when he came back, he said, I got 99%. They go, well, what happened to the 1%? Why didn't you get 100? And, and all the time it was making him push himself harder. Hard. But that in itself, you have to unpack later in life. Um, legacy. What would you like your legacy to be in your personal life and your work in a sentence? I would like people to think that I had integrity, that I was kind. I think kindness is a crucially important uh, value because in being kind, you are doing quite a lot. You are being empathetic, you are being curious, you are being self-critical and you are not putting yourself forward, giving other people space, all of that. Mm. Um, In my professional life, integrity and um, holding myself to a standard. Yeah. Brilliant. When you've got somebody who's working with you who is toxic and affects the team or the unit you're in, what what would be your top tip about dealing with someone who's toxic? I've never been in a position where I've had someone who's on my team who's toxic. Mm. But what I do say is that I will not tolerate bullies. Yeah. And we come back to morals, courage. If you know and see somebody who is being a bully, somebody's got to have the moral courage to say, 
the consequences may be difficult for me, but I've got to make a stand. And the bully doesn't have to be an obvious cartoon character you're dealing with, but it can be just someone in a position of authority who, who uh, a judge, for example, in my practice, who demands a certain level of attention, regardless of the views of others. And there comes a time when someone particularly of my seniority must be prepared if one had, in the rare occasion where the one has a judge like that, to stand up. And I would be prepared to protect any of my juniors to the hilt. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's another quality of leaders, is that leaders have to protect their team and they yeah. have to take the blame. Yeah. Even um, if, it, even if the, it's the fault, if you can call it that, of a junior, leadership requires that you take the hit externally and then you have a discussion with yeah. the junior. Yeah, beautifully put. I'm reminded of uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower the night before D-Day wrote two letters. One saying he was really very proud of the success of D-Day and he gave the... Uh, the accolades to you know Bradley and Patton and all the other generals. What a great, great example they'd led. And the second one was a letter he wrote about. He was really terribly disappointed about the failure of D-Day, and he personally took full accountability for its failure. And, and I'm reminded of that it sticks with me every day. Um, the last question, then we'll do the two-minute top tip, is a favorite book on leadership or on something about life that helps us what would be your favorite book i haven't read any books on leadership um i've muddled through but one book which i found very interesting um almost inspiring is a fairly controversial book now i think called the master and his emissary by ian mcgilchrist who's a fellow of all souls and a um uh highly regarded English literature Don and psychology Don. And he um, wrote this magnificent book, which was a thesis on the two sides of the brain, as he described it. The one side of the brain, which is um, good at analytical thought. Uh, this is a terrible um, summary and shorthand of what he's saying. And the other side of the uh, brain which is the creative side of the brain and of course these are um again caricatures of what happens in the brain but it was for me very interesting in that the whole person is a combination of both mm. and if somebody is brilliant at one particular thing for example in my profession we've got many people who are brilliant at analytical thought that is one of the hallmarks of success at the bar. It doesn't mean that you are cleverer than somebody else who may not have that aptitude to the same extent as you, but who has a magnificent ability to uh, listen, to empathize, to um, improve the lot of the people around them. Mm. That doesn't make them any less clever or any worse. I think you've got to look at the whole person. Yeah. You've got to be it, curious about people. And this is where integrity, the integrated inspiring leader is, it's, yes. as opposed to the disintegrated inspiring leader where bits are missing. Yes. And this is where integrity and being integrated is so key. Thank you. Would you finally, uh, to wrap it up nicely, um, just introduce yourself once more and what you do and give us your two minute top tip on leadership, a practical advice. Well, again, I'm Harry Matovu. I'm a barrister uh, in practice at the Commercial Bar and a QC. I've been in practice for 30 years. And I've been asked about my um, top tips. It seems to me that you have got to hold yourself to a standard, first of all, both in your personal life and in your professional life. That's a high standard. And that doesn't mean that you can't, won't fall from that standard, but you've got to try to maintain that standard there and try to meet it always. 
no points for fa failure, but no disgrace in failure, but have the standard and hold yourself to it. Second point, be authentic in everything that you do. Be authentic and listen. Listen to people. Listen to ideas. Read between the subjects. And third, and perhaps most of all, have moral courage in everything you do. Be prepared to take the difficult decision, even though you know it may have consequences, unhappy consequences for you. Because as I think it was Samuel Johnson said, of all the virtues that there are, the greatest is moral courage, because without moral courage, the other virtues cannot have expression. Yeah. Unless you have the courage to display them, they are worthless. So Fantastic. moral courage is very Fantastic. Harry Matubu, QC, thank you very much for being our guest on the Inspire Leadership Podcast. It was a real honor having you. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. It was an honor for me. It was a privilege. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you. <music>